Welcome to Theology.fm. I am Jeremy Myers, your host. Listen, have you ever struggled with the issue of the violence of God in the Bible? Seems like you can hardly read a page out of the Old Testament sometimes without this nation or that group of people being slaughtered or drowned or burned or stoned or condemned or God's uh, going all over the place in Scripture, killing children and women and even oxen and donkeys and tearing down houses and banning people and destroying people and telling Israelites to go to war with people and it just people really, really struggle with this. In fact, I think that in recent years, maybe in recent decades, the issue of the violence of God in the Bible is probably the key key theological issue that people need to struggle with. So uh, today we're going to have Greg Boyd share some of his ideas on how he understands the violence of God in the Old Testament. And so I hope you uh, stick around and hear what he has to say. In case you are unaware, Greg Boyd is an internationally recognized theologian, preacher, teacher, apologist, author. Never read one of his books. I highly recommend Letters from a Skeptic. It's sort of an apologetics book. Um, He has a book coming out called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Uh, And I think the message that we're going to hear from him today will be, or at least bits and pieces, some of the ideas from this message will be found in that book. It's forthcoming. should be coming out next year sometime. Uh, You can also find Greg at his website, renew.org. That's R-E-K-N-E-W.org. Also has his podcast on iTunes, his books on Amazon, Christian book distributors. And uh, he's also a frequent tweeter on Twitter. (laughs) And uh, so you can read his tweets there and even interact with him some. He does a pretty good job about responding to tweets a lot of the times. So uh, you can find him there. The uh, sponsor for today's episode... Uh, In this month of December 2015, I'm making you the sponsor, or at least potentially you. If you appreciate sort of the ideas and theology that is sent out by Theology.fm and you want to partner in helping this ministry continue, I wonder if you would uh, consider making a year-end gift to uh, my ministry. You can go to redeeminggod.com slash partner to learn more. Look, there's no guilt I'm not trying to pressure you into this. If this is something you've benefited from, you've learned from, and you want to say thanks, then uh, go read more at uh, redeeminggod.com partner and uh, find out more about the ministry, my mission, and uh, my reach, how I'm reaching people with the gospel and how you can partner with me in doing that. Again, if that's not something you want to do or, or uh, you know, you just don't feel like now's the time, that's fine too. I completely understand. I do thank you for listening, though, and uh, stick with me as we find out what Greg Boyd has to say about the violence of God. The um, show notes for today can be found at theology.fm slash gregboyd slash 09. You can leave your comments and questions there. Now, I myself have been struggling with the issue of the violence of God in the Old Testament for a very long time. I don't know, probably since my teen years. Uh, I have read scores and scores of books, and that's not an exaggeration on the topic. Uh, I, I spent countless hours thinking about the various passages in the Bible which present God as violent. Uh, and, you know, part of the problem is that humans are inherently violent. 
and, and so uh, many people don't struggle with the issue of the violent God in the Bible, uh, and because, in my opinion, some people like having a violent God because then we can use God as a way to justify our own violence. Yeah, we think that just as God's violence, you know, is only against our enemies, the wicked sinners over there, well, then uh, we too can engage in violence if it's directed at those sinful, wicked, evil, horrible, violent people over there. And, and that sort of violence is justified because, after all, we see God engaging in that sort of violence and even commanding that sort of violence in the Bible. I've always had a problem with this, however, because, well, because of Jesus. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus is adamantly opposed to all violence. Uh, rather, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, rather than encourage us to kill our enemies, Jesus instructs us to love and forgive our enemies. In uh, Luke 9, when the disciples want to incinerate people of various towns because they didn't accept Jesus but rejected him, uh, they want to call down fire from heaven like Elijah on these cities and burn them all up. And Jesus rebukes his disciples and tells them that they do not know what spirit they are of. In John 10, he writes about how the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, he has come to give life and to give it more abundantly. In other words, he says, I do not steal, kill, or destroy. Whenever issues of violence and murder and bloodshed come up in the Gospels, Jesus attributes such behaviors as coming from the devil and as having nothing whatsoever to do with God. And then there's the cross. I mean, you just take the cross. Uh, if there was ever anyone who deserved to be murdered and slaughtered, it was the people who put Jesus on the cross. I mean, talk about the enemies of God. They are killing God himself. But does Jesus call down legions of angels from heaven to defend himself, to rise up and slaughter the people who are unjustly, unrighteously, wickedly, evilly killing him? No, he doesn't. Instead, on the cross, Jesus forgives his murderers and dies for them. So we have this weird contrast here. We have Jesus on the cross and Jesus in his teachings with all these bloody and violent portrayals of God in the Old Testament. How can the two be reconciled? Some people just say, well, you, you, you smush them both together. And, and Greg, that's sort of a term from Greg Boyd, this smushing idea of God. You take the two and you smush them together and you come up with some sort of schizophrenic idea of God and, and that's, that's who God is. Uh, some people go a different route, and they say, no, Jesus is the revelation of God that can be trusted. The Old Testament revelation of God cannot be trusted. The Old Testament's wrong. Jesus is right. So let's just sort of be like that old heretic Marcion and throw out the Old Testament. I'm not comfortable with that either. I'm not comfortable with either of those. Um Some people say, well, Jesus, uh, he has a violent streak himself. After all, just read the book of Revelation. There's blood and guts all over the place and, and meteors falling from the sky and God poisoning the waters and all this stuff. Millions of people die in Revelation. So, so in the first coming of Jesus, this is what people say, in the first coming, all that violent side was just hidden. And uh, it'll show up when Jesus comes in his second coming. Uh, now, I don't agree with that either, because Jesus himself says that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And he's talking about his revelation to his disciples when he was ministering among them. That's at his first coming. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And Paul says uh, that Jesus uh, is the exact representation, the image of God. 
um, author, author of Hebrews, same thing. The exact representation of God. So anyway, uh, it's a big dilemma. And about five years ago, I set out to seriously study this issue to try to solve this dilemma. And uh, right now, about five years into my study, I think I have come up with a solution that allows us to retain uh, the authority, maybe you could call it the inerrancy of the entire scripture, including the Old Testament, uh, as well as seeing the actions of God in the Old Testament um, for what they are, uh, and also see them in, in light of Jesus forgiving and dying for his enemies rather than killing them. And I've been writing on this for, for many years, uh, and I'm getting close to publishing something on it, I think. But uh, a few months back, uh, one of my blog readers sent me a Facebook message, I think, or maybe it was a tweet, I don't remember, maybe it was a comment on my blog, and said, hey, have you been listening to Greg Boyd on this? And he sent me a link to a message by Greg Boyd, and it was my introduction to Greg Boyd's podcast. Um, And apparently, it turns out, he was tackling some of the same issues and had come up with an explanation of his own. So I went and listened to Greg Boyd's message. It's the one I'm going to share with you today. It's called God's Shadow Activity. Uh, My explanation is not the same as Greg Boyd's explanation. There, There are some similarities Um, but they're not the same. So uh, why am I including it here? I I don't agree with everything Greg Boyd says. Of course, I haven't seen his book yet, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, so I'm not fully sure what it is he's going to say. But uh, I'm including this message here, God's shadow activity, to just get you thinking in the right direction. Uh, I think Greg Boyd does an excellent job here introducing the issue of the violence of God, and he presents a unique solution to it, And I want you to be introduced to it and just begin thinking about this process. Uh, And eventually when I publish something, I will record some podcasts on my own solution to the issue of the violence of God in the Bible as well. So with all of that in mind, a big long introduction, let's tune in and see what Greg Boyd has to say. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm just one of the people around here and it's really good to see all of you here on this beautiful July Sunday morning gathering together to worship God. And to, and to study his word. We've got um, uh, 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 Jado from Rwanda. He tell, tells me that there's a, a kind of a community of folks. We've got some parishioners in Rwanda, praise God. And they download all the time. <laughs> Welcome, Jado. So good uh, to have you here. Uh, so they, he had to come over here for some business thing, I guess. And um, they told him to uh, buy all the books and stuff to bring it back there. And, and so he's kind of an ambassador for the community in Rwanda. So God bless you, parishioners in Rwanda. Also got some folks here from Poland. Uh, welcome to Woodland Hills. We're glad that you're here. I, I love it. So our parishioner community is out there all over the place, and it just blesses, just blesses my heart tremendously. Uh, okay, if you have uh, cell phones uh, or anything else that can make noise, could you put, turn off the sound on that? Uh, you can keep your phones on if you want, because... Uh, we're encouraging you to text in questions as uh, the uh, sermon's going on. And so you can just text in questions here. We won't answer them today, but we're going to have another time in August when we address all the questions we've compiled, like we did last week. It seemed like it was a lot of fun. And uh, uh, so text in those questions. Or if you have questions, you can write them out and turn them in at the hub uh, at the end of the service, and we'll get to those in August as well. Uh, and if anyone starts to be a distraction uh, with you, we encourage you to take them out in the gathering area. And still be part of the service that way. Um, so people like me can focus. Uh, when you have ADD, it's not always easy. I was at Sunshine this, this last weekend. 
Which is, uh, that's, that's a great, uh, that, I've never been there before, but it's, it's very, very, very cool. And uh, so I, I, I spoke uh, several times. And uh, one of the afternoon sessions, I'm doing a seminar in a tent. And about 100 yards away, there is one of, they have four stages. And this was the heavy metal stage. But the heavy metal, it, what was going on, the, the music that was going on there, uh, I guess they call it uh, scorching voice. Uh, some of you know what that is? Uh, scorching voice or, or hardcore metal or whatever. But it, the, the singer singer has a, like his monster voice and it sounds like... And they're doing it for the glory of God. I, uh, I'm 55. I don't get it at all. Uh, but I realized in saying that, I sound like my father to me. So when I was a kid. But competing with that was unthinkably hard. I, you know, I, if I hear, you know, a bird tweeting out there, it's a distraction. This is a monster voice. It's like, oh, it was hard. It was hard. So I'd appreciate it if you turn off all that noise-making stuff. Uh, uh, in terms of announcements, what we've got here is uh, just our church-wide baptism next week, 2 o'clock after this service at Lake Phelan. Really encourage as many people as possible to come out and be a part of this. And if you've never been baptized as an adult by immersion, I encourage you to consider that. You can take a class uh, next week uh, that kind of lets you know what that's about. Um, And bring your bathing suit in case you decide that this is something you want to do. But we encourage everybody who is a follower of Jesus to be uh, baptized into the church and uh, uh, be buried and resurrected with him in the waters of baptism. Oh, I just read the, read the bulletin, uh, get online, I just know what's going on here. If this is your church body, know what's going on here, and um, uh, pray over all the things that you see there, the ministries, the opportunities, because we're always looking for more of a prayer covering. I wore sandals, and the sandals just got too hot, that's why I'm barefooted, and you don't care, that's good. Uh, Jesus went barefoot sometimes, I, I, I'm told, I, I, I read between the lines, he was barefoot sometimes, so I'm Christ-like, there you go. This is holy ground, so my, my, my sandals are off. Right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today um, we're going back to Colossians. We're moving ahead two verses, uh, verses 16 through 17. We actually ran through this uh, about eight verses several weeks ago, but I'm focusing on these two verses. And we're entitling this message, God's Shadow Activity. And it's going to address... A very, very, very important topic. Uh, it feels huge, really huge. In fact, uh, that's why in this service we, we cut out one of the worship songs to give more time to deliver this, and I appreciate the worship team for the flexibility. Uh, but it feels, it, it's, it's kind of, it feels like a, kind of a watershed moment, uh, one of those Kairos moments that you have uh, in the life of a church. It, it concerns uh, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how we interpret that. How do you reconcile some of the stuff you find in the Old Testament, some of the portraits of God you find in the Old Testament with the revelation of God in Christ? And a lot hangs on this. A whole lot hangs on this. Some of you know that I've been in a project, research writing project, for the last four years uh, addressing this issue. Um, and it's been an interesting four years for me. Uh, where I'm at now is not where I was at when I started. The thesis that I started off with that I thought I was going to prove, I finally abandoned. <laughs> uh, this didn't work. But then I feel like God's given me a clarity about this that I never had before. Sometimes, honestly, uh, it feels like revelation. And I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord. I'm saying to me, it feels like revelation. My eyes are opened to see something clearly that I hadn't seen before. And it all has to do with 
I've come just to see how, how vital it is that we read our Bibles through the lens of the cross, where we finally find out what God is really like. And everything needs to be interpreted in that light. Uh, the things I'm going to share this morning are, are going to be new. Uh, even to the, you who, who have heard me speak on this topic, uh, it's been on my mind as I'm writing this book, which will be done next year, uh, hopefully sometime. But as I've shared on this, um, you, you, I, I, I've sprinkled some of it into messages. But the way I'm uh, delivering it here this morning is going to be new. It, it's a, a different angle. And for those of you who have never heard any of this before, it's going to be radically new. If you're new to the church here, um, it, in all likelihood, it's going to be a complete reframe. Uh, it's going to raise a lot of questions, I guarantee you. And so that's why I'm encouraging you to texting whatever questions arise or write out questions that, that arise and turn it at the hub. Um, and we'll address those uh, in this uh, weekend service uh, in August. Uh, we're, it doesn't need the whole service to a Q&A time. Um, this is my way, as I've struggled with this, I, I've been in process on this thing for 25 years. And the last three years has been this turning of my a different perspective and working it out. Uh, it's a process. And this is my way of resolving this difficult issue of how to reconcile some of the stuff you find in the Old Testament with the revelation of God in Christ. It doesn't have to be your way. Okay, this is my way. I'm just going to share it. Um, we in, in the church here make a, a, this kind of distinction. Not everything's equally important. At the center of everything is, is Jesus Christ and the love of God revealed on the cross. And we're to get all of our life and worth from that alone. And then in the next ring of importance is what we call dogma. These are the beliefs that the historic Orthodox Church has always had. They're very important, but we don't get life from them. And then outside of that are the doctrines of the church. These are the different beliefs that churches have, and they disagree on them. They're ways of interpreting the dogma. They're important, but they're not as important as the dogma. And then on the outer ring, we have the realm of opinion. And these are just opinions that people have, and they're good to discuss and debate and things like that, but they don't define the church. What I'm sharing here today is, I think, very important, but it's, it's, it's opinion. It's opinion. So it's okay to disagree with this. Um, you might disagree with it now and come to agree with it next year. It, it's a process. And I'm so thankful that God gives us the grace to grow and to work things out and to disagree and, and to share with one another. Uh, I just ask you to keep an open mind as I'm sharing this. Um, and if you feel like it's revelatory, good, then wear it and wonderful. If not, then just keep on chewing on it. If you find a better way of answering the question that I'm asking, please email me. I'm always open to, to, to new stuff. Um, because I've got a lot to say here today, the book I'm writing, um, it's called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's already over 600 pages, a quarter of which are footnotes. Uh, most of you aren't going to read it, so I'm going to write a popular version to go along with it. But, but um, uh, I'm trying to condense that into this for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, it's not easy. So it's going to be rather condensed. Uh, for that reason, I'm going to stick to my notes um, also, I am aware that anytime you say anything new, you're going to take hits. And as this gets out there, I'm very aware that it's going to be pushed back on. So I want to say it right. Um, I, I'm going to try to resist the urge of giving into ADD tendencies and going spontaneous. Uh, I, I, want the, I, I want to say it right. If I'm going to get shot, I want to be for the right reasons, not because someone misunderstood me. So I'll be sticking close to my notes here. A little, little unusual for me. Um, okay, so the passage is this. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Mm. Therefore, 
And therefore, it refers back to what we've been studying for the last couple of months. It refers to 13 through 15, verses 13 through 15, where Paul talks about what God did for us on the cross. So he's saying, because of the cross, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, the reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality is found in Christ. Don't go back to the shadows. The reality is found in Christ. Pray with me here. Abba Father, I pray that as we're wrestling with this tough issue, uh, that you give us clarity. Uh, help us. We're at different places on this, and that's wonderful, but uh, I pray, God, you use this message to, to give clarity, to open our eyes, to see. I pray, God, that whatever is of you, that you just anoint it and make it huge and give it a yes. But whatever is not of you, God, let it fall just two inches uh, down the steps here. It doesn't even reach the audience. And God, however we work this out theologically, I pray, God, that you would use this to increase our trust and confidence that you are as beautiful as you reveal yourself to be on the cross. That that really is you. However we work this out, that is you. We surrender this to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Get your thinking caps on. Shoot your brains with steroids. You're going to have to be paying attention to this one. There are some advantages to having a theologian as your senior pastor, and there are some disadvantages. Um, you'll decide which is which as this message goes forward. So here's the thing. We believe that the Bible is all inspired. God breathed. Um, you may not believe that, but I believe that, and that's what Woodland Hills as a church believes. It's all God inspired. But does it mean that it all has equal authority for us now? Does it mean that we're supposed to all interpret it the same way? Here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. Jesus commands us to love everybody unconditionally and to serve everybody unconditionally and to pray a blessing on everybody, even our enemies, even our persecutors. And the New Testament also tells us that we're to pray for our, our, our governmental authorities. Pray that they know the ways of peace, that God gives them wisdom. At the same time, we have in the Old Testament dozens and dozens of what are called imprecatory prayers. These are prayers of vengeance. Prayers in the Old Testament where you find in Psalms that they're praying for God to curse their enemy, to slay their enemy, to abolish their enemy, to to delight in the blood that flows from their bashed heads. I mean, some of it is really grotesque. I have a transcript of a radio program several years ago where Alan Combs was interviewing the former vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who is now an influential pastor of a huge megachurch. And this pastor, in the course of this interview, admitted that he prayed for God to slay Obama, whom he called the usurper of the White House. And Combs was just like, taken back, and he says, he, he pressed for clarity, like, like, you mean that metaphorically, you're not really saying. And the guy just repeated himself over and over, yeah, I want God to kill Obama. And, and Combs said, how can you, if you, a, a minister of the gospel, pray for such a hateful thing? And here's Combs, who, so far as I can tell, is not a Christian, challenging this Christian leader why are you so hateful? And the guy said, because I, I quote here, I believe the whole Bible, including its imprecatory, imprecatory prayers. Well, if you believe the whole Bible is inspired, those vengeful prayers for God to bring a bloodbath on your enemies are right there. So was he wrong? 
He's just quoting the Bible. It's sad, but but this this is this kind of uh, religiosity is exploding right now. In fact, they're calling it a Bible-based hate speech, which is really sad when you think about it. Like God needs one more chink in the PR department here. Bible-based hate speech, but it's right now we are living in such a a time of this dreadful venom polluting the political realm on both sides. It's just. And, and be very wary of this. Man, there is a diabolical venom, hatred just permeating the, 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 the atmosphere right now. It's not going to get any better for uh, until November. And, and so we're seeing an explosion of this Bible-based hate speech. There's a guy, a, a representative several months ago, who sent out an email to the representatives of his, in his party. And he asked all of them to pray Psalms 109 for the president. And then he quotes Psalms 109. And this is the version he has in, the, in, in his email. I've seen it. This is right from his email. It says, let his prayer become sin. Interesting prayer to pray. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless. Let his wife be a widow. Let his children be continual vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let there be none to extend mercy unto them. Neither let there be any to favor his father, fatherless children. Thus reads the word of the Lord for today. Can you imagine Jesus praying that prayer? Seems to me he prayed the opposite. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. The very people who were crucifying him. But then the legislator added, at the, right after having quoted that psalm, he says, At last I can honestly voice a biblical prayer for our president. Look it up! It is word for word. Let us all bow our heads and pray. That your father, that your children would be beggars and no one would have mercy on them? And all over the place we're seeing Christian leaders speaking this way, and they're basing it on the Old Testament. The question is, are they right? We believe the whole Bible is inspired. Is this legitimate? And if so, then how on earth do you reconcile that vengeful, hateful, diabolical praying with the way Jesus told us to pray? To pray blessing on the very people who are persecuting us. You could ask this question a million different ways, and appeal to a million different aspects of the Old Testament. How, how, how do you reconcile portraits of God saying, slaughter everyone in Canaan. Everything that breathes, kill it. Show no mercy. Men, women, children, infants, animals, slaughter them all. How do you reconcile that with this portrait of God in Christ, uh, where God gives his life for his enemies and dies for all and prays mercy uh, uh, for all? This is a huge question, folks. I, I uh, In the book I'm doing, I, I, I have a chapter where I just collected all of those uh, really nasty, violent portraits of God and prayers and stuff like that into one chapter. When you put them all together, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot of nasty stuff there. It's a huge question. If you believe it's all God inspired, and I do. How do we make sense out of this? Now, see, what, what Christians typically do is they say, well, since it's all inspired, it all reveals God. So this reveals God in the Old Testament as much as the cross reveals God. So I'll just smush them together. And see what happens. And so we get a smushed portrait of God, where God is partly Jesus-like, loving-like, graceful-like, but partly vengeful and, 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 and hating enemies and, and all the rest. This kind of incoherent uh, picture that combines, it's fused at all. You've got almost a schizophrenic God. And then whenever Christians want to justify their hatred and their violence, they just appeal, appeal to the nasty side of God. Well, God did so so can we. I just believe the whole Bible. Oh, God, slay them, slaughter them, show no mercy on them. 
Just jump right over Jesus' commands and just peel to the whatever part we like. And that's what Christians have been doing throughout history. Whenever they wanted to slaughter somebody, they said, oh, well, God said we could do it, so let's do it. As though Jesus hadn't showed up. I want to ask the question, is there another way of affirming that the whole Bible is inspired without smooshing the portraits together to create this kind of montage of beauty mixed with ugliness? As a way of affirming that the whole Bible is inspired, because some folks will say, well, that part, whatever part, you know, is ugly, I'm just going to take it out. It's not inspired. But I, I can't do that. I, 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 for a lot of reasons, that, that isn't an option. The whole Bible is inspired. But there's, is there a way of affirming that without saying that, therefore, these imprecatory prayers are justified? In fact, I want to affirm the whole Bible is inspired, but I want to say that the, the attitude behind those imprecatory prayers is antichrist. Because it's against what Christ commanded. It's antichrist. I want to denounce it. All right. I think the answer, the core of the answer to this question is found in the two verses that we read this morning. Um, Paul is speaking to this Gnostic group that's trying to influence the Colossian Christians. And this Gnostic group is teaching them that if you want to be right with God, if you want to know God and experience the fullness of God, well then, among other things, you have to obey the meticulous regulations of the Old Testament concerning food and, 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 and religious festivals and the Sabbath and things like that. And Paul confronts that and says, don't let anyone judge you about what you eat or drink or what day you're going to worship on. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. But the reality is found in Christ. The reality is Christ. And he's saying, if the reality is Christ, why would you ever go back to the shadows? Now, to see how Paul's answer allows us to affirm that the whole Bible is inspired without doing the smushing technique to find out what God is like, let's ask the question, what is a shadow? What is it to be a shadow? And the answer is that a shadow is, is, a, is a, it reflects a real thing, it reflects a real thing, but it does it by negation. It's the negative outline of a real thing. So here's my, me and my shadow. Isn't that nice? I look like some kind of... 60s beatnik. <laughs> hey, Daddy O. What's happening, Papa? Okay. My, my shadow, you'll notice, is like me in some respects. You can see an outline of me in my shadow. It's, it, 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 it points to me in some ways, but it's also unlike me in most respects. The shadow itself is distorted, it doesn't quite capture uh, the outline of my body. The shadow is a two-dimensional thing, whereas I, the real Greg Boyd, is a three-dimensional being. Um, the shadow is, by definition, a, ne- a negation of the radiant me that you see in the light. Right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a negation of all that. And so it doesn't capture the fullness of me that, that fills your senses. It doesn't capture uh, the, the nice color of my eyes and, and the smooth, baby-soft texture of my skin, especially down here where I have eczema. It doesn't quite capture that. And it doesn't capture my, the soft texture of my curly hair. It doesn't capture my six-pack abs, you know. It just can't. The, the shadow doesn't capture that or my ripped muscles. And it doesn't capture my aroma, even after I haven't showered for a week, how wonderful that is. It doesn't capture any, it doesn't capture my, my spark, my personality. It doesn't capture my spirit. It doesn't capture my mind. You know, it just doesn't capture any of that. All it is is a negation. And the negation tells you something, but it doesn't tell you much. And what Paul is saying is that as my shadow is to me, so the Old Testament law is to Christ. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It's very important to be able to distinguish the shadow from the reality. 
For this reason, it can never, never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. No matter how much you do the shadow, you'll never get to the reality. That's what he's saying. So he's saying that those, those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus, but for animal lovers like me, it's a very upsetting book, especially the middle part, when it goes into all the meticulous rules about how you have to slaughter animals uh, to make atonement for your sin. You must take off the pigeon and twist its head counterclockwise three times and pop it, whatever, and sprinkle the blood over here and over there. It's like, ah, poor bird. And those animals, it's like, I can just imagine them saying, I wish you guys would stop sinning. <laughs> Ripping us apart for it. And you read that stuff, it's like, what, what on earth is going on there? But the author's saying, okay, that is just, that's just a distorted negative image of the reality. It's a distorted negative image of, of what was to come. The reality are, are these good things that are to come, and the good things all pertain to Christ. He's talking about Christ as our intercessor, our high priest, our mediator, the head of the new human race that, that, that Christ has, has, has inaugurated here on earth, and, and, and all the other things. All that is a shadow of the reality, but the reality is, is Christ. So the image that both Paul and the author of Hebrews are getting at is this. The crucified Christ cast a shadow back in time into the Old Testament. And part of that shadow is the law. It's a shadow of the reality. And I say it's a shadow of the crucified Christ because the cross on which Jesus died sums up everything Jesus was about. Everything Jesus was about manifests God's other-oriented, agape, self-sacrificial love. And nowhere is that more perfectly and poignantly and powerfully and unambiguously expressed than on the cross. So the cross is a theme of Jesus' whole life. That's why throughout the Gospels, they're all oriented around the cross. And the epistles, the Gospels, always centered on the cross. The cross is the theme of everything. And that image of, of Christ dying on the cross casts a shadow back in time. That's why John says that God is love. God is love. He is love. But see, love can mean anything to anybody. St. Augustine says that God is love. And then he ascribes to God, as God who is love, some of the most heinous things you can imagine. Predestining the majority of human beings to be damned forever in hell before they're ever created. Oh, it was all love. But see, fortunately, John himself gives us a very specific definition of love. He says, here's, what, here's how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us. Love is self-sacrificial love. The kind of love that God is, is the love that, that leads him to become a human being and die a God-forsaken death on behalf of us. That's what love looks like. We've got to grasp the importance and the magnificence of this. God is a love that looks like the cross. Out of love, the Almighty God became a human being, bore our sins, condescended to bear our sins, bear our judgment, bear our God-forsakenness. Why? Why would He leave the bliss and the joy of heaven, His own being, to suffer like this? And the answer is because that's what love does. That's the kind of love that God is. It's not. This is His nature, His essence. God is this. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is from all eternity an other-oriented kind of love that gives itself wholly away to another. God is that. And then when God expresses himself to us in our fallen condition, it looks like the cross. It looks like the cross. So the cross isn't just something that God does. The cross is who he is. It captures his, his, his essence. And it's the only revelation that does that. So the cross isn't simply one of the activities that God does. No, the cross is the theme for everything that God does. He does it out of self-sacrificial love. So the reality of God is, is Christ crucified. The cross isn't part of God, the reality of God. It defines God totally. 
God is all cross-like. He's, John says that he is light, and in him there is no darkness, none, zero. He's altogether light. He's altogether love. And the love is defined by what's revealed on the cross. That's his essence. So Paul and the author of Hebrews are telling us that this reality, the reality that's revealed on the cross, it casts a shadow back in time. Which means that God gave the shadow to humans in history before he brought the real thing. And the minute we accept that, it has massive implications for how we're going to interpret that back-in-time shadow. How we're going to interpret the Old Testament. Major implications. Implications that I don't think the majority of Christians yet get. Because we don't treat it like a shadow, we treat it like reality. And because we treat it like reality, we just take it and we give it as much authority as we give the cross. And then that's what leads the Christians to smoosh it all together and get a partly cross like God, but it's mixed up with a lot of other genocidal stuff. So we compromise the beauty of the cross... And then that's what motivates them to do some demonic stuff like praying that people will die in the name of Jesus. To see the implications that this shadow teaching has. Um, if that's the question, why would God give the shadow before he gave the reality? Why would God do that? What's he doing? And the answer that I'd like you to think about is this. God always meets people where they are at. He, means he comes down to our level. To deal with, deal with us, he comes down to our level. Now, maybe you're somewhere hearing this message either in the auditorium or through podcast, and they're saying, oh, God's all-powerful. He doesn't have to do anything. He could snap his fingers and make everyone perfect if he wanted to. And you're right, God has the power to do that. But think about it. If God were to do that, then what he effectively did is he just destroyed a race of real people and replaced them with perfect mannequin lookalikes. That's not the same creation. See, God creates persons, and then he treats us like persons. If you're treating people like persons, you can't just wiggle your nose and transform them into mannequins. No, if you're dealing with persons, that means you've got to to come down to their level. You've got to get on the inside. You've got to gradually and slowly transform them. This is why God wrote the Bible. He's always wrestling with people. He's struggling. He gets frustrated with them because he he honors the integrity of their personhood. He doesn't just bulldoze over them. He's a God of influence, not coercion. And so God, throughout history, comes down and slowly, he meets people where they're at and slowly transforms them to be the people he wants them to be so that he can eventually reveal who he really is. God is like a missionary to a foreign country. If you're a missionary and you go to a, a different country and you see things that are not you know, consistent with the gospel, you can't just bulldoze in there and say, hey, if you're wrong about this, that, and the other thing. No, if you're a missionary, you have to go humbly. You have to, you have to enter into the culture. You have to go native. And you have to affirm as much as you can affirm and gradually win the love and the trust of people before you can start uh, telling them how things should change. Uh, you can't just barge in there. So God enters this world as a missionary. And in this world, in the ancient world, it's frankly barbaric. This is the world. The world that God enters is a world that really only understands brute force and the threat of law. This is a barbaric world where, where people instinctively think of God and the gods as these petty tribal, uh, violent warriors. When you think of God, you just think of a a dysfunctional king on steroids, you know, in in the heavenlies. And so the Israelites are going to be inclined to think of God that way. That's, That's the world God enters. As a missionary, God humbly steps into this brutish, barbaric world to slowly transform it from the inside out. He reveals as much of his true self as he can, but to the degree that his people can't handle it, he accommodates sin, enters into it, 
And as, insofar as he can't reveal who he really is, as, as we see in the cross, he relates to his people in the shadow of the cross. And he does it to eventually and gradually and lovingly bring humanity to the point where he can now reveal who he truly is on the cross. It's like a missionary couple that I learned about a number of years ago, and I think I've shared this before. They were um, the first couple of this African tribe. And this tribe practiced what is commonly called female circumcision. Uh, that's the wrong word for it because it's not at all like male circumcision. Uh, it, it, it's Some people say you just call it mutilating young women. The excruciating barbaric practice of mutilating the genitalia of adolescent girls for the sole purpose usually of ensuring male property rights so that when they claim them as a wife, they can be sure that they're virgins. It means in, in, in many cases, maybe most cases, that the, the young ladies are never in their whole life going to be able to enjoy sexual intercourse. It will always be something painful. Now, this couple comes to this tribe and they see this. But they can't just immediately go, stop that, stop that. Because they would lose all credibility with this tribe if they were to do that. Who do these foreigners think they are? This is a revered tradition that's been practiced by our ancestors for centuries and centuries and centuries. And you're going to come in here and just tell, say, tell us that it's wrong? See, it doesn't work like that. If this couple ever hoped to get that tribe to be freed from that barbaric practice, they had to come in humbly. They had to go native. They had to enter into the world of these folks. Uh, they, they, though it grieved them terribly, they had to for years, several years anyways, watch this tribe continue this barbaric practice. Sometimes even, to some extent, participating in the festivities, because this was, I was told, a big deal in this African tribe. And the, the tribe would naturally assume that these folks are okay with this, because they probably think everyone's okay with this. But see, but gradually, as this couple humbly manifested God's love to this tribe and served this tribe as they were, and they gained credibility with this tribe. The tribe began to trust them. And so they could slowly begin to reveal their real character and their real will. And they could slowly start to bring principles of the gospel into the tribe as they won uh, the, the, the right to begin to speak into their lives. And so they began to teach about how human beings are all made in the image of God and they need to be treated like they're in the image of God and how men and women are, are equal. And the tribe slowly comes to accept this. They slowly came to accept the gospel, embrace the gospel and become followers of Jesus. And they finally came to see for themselves that this practice was inhuman and not honoring God. And so they abandoned it. That is how God, I believe, works throughout all of history. And that's what we're seeing him work in the Old Testament. Now, see, now, just imagine if somebody, imagine if somebody in that tribe were to have chronicled the missionaries' behavior the minute, from the minute they got there. And so they recorded that they went for three years, three years of, of appearing to condone this uh, mutilation of, of young women. And they recorded it in a book. When the tribe came to understand who the missionaries really were, what the true character and will was, and the, when they came to understand how wrong it was to, to, to be engaged in that practice, imagine how they would now read that chronicle. That is to them like an Old Testament, a B.C. document. They would now see, as they read this chronicle of their missionaries' activity, they see in the former behavior of these missionaries, when they appeared to condone and even celebrate female circumcision, they would now know that that doesn't reveal their true character or their true will. They would see it as a shadow of their true character. It's a negative contrast to their true character. It doesn't reveal who they are, it reveals who they're not. 
But precisely because it reveals who they're not, because it's a shadow, a negation, the tribe, as they look back on this B.C. document, they'd also begin to see the outline of the real missionaries in the shadow. The shadow points to the reality. How? Because as they're reading this chronicle, they would see that they now understand that it was out of love for the tribe that these missionaries stooped to appearing to condone this barbaric practice. They would see this out of love for this tribe that these missionaries allowed the tribe to think that, in fact, they condoned this. Uh, it was out of love for the tribe that they went native. It was out of love for this tribe that they allowed the tribal folks to project their own image of, 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 of people onto them and, uh, and make it appear that they were condoning this. They would now, as they look back on this chronicle, enlightening what, now that they know what the, 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 who the missionaries really are, they see in this shadow activity a reflection of, of, of love where this, this couple bore the sin of the community for a period of years, bore the sin and took on the appearance of one of the tribal members who, is, who celebrates female circumcision. Precisely because they know that that's not who the missionaries are, they'd see how that behavior points to the reality of who the missionaries are. You see this? Because they now know that these missionaries love them and sacrifice for them. They'd understand how, how it must have grieved their heart. How it must have grieved their heart to have put up with this for, for such a period of time. I'd like to ask you to consider thinking about aspects of the Old Testament in that fashion. God's been doing his patient missionary work in human history for centuries, humbly stooping into our world and accommodating, though it surely it grieved his heart, accommodating many things he didn't approve of. And it's chronicled in the Old Testament. We now know who God really is if we trust Jesus. We now know that God is revealed. Quintessential expression is on the cross. We know that God's eternal nature is self-sacrificial love. We know, and we know that he's a God who's willing to stoop to bear our sins and a God who's willing to take on the appearance of something much uglier than it really is because that's exactly what he does on the cross. And God is cross-like love. And so with that understanding, knowing who the true God is, we now need to look back on the chronicle of our heavenly missionary's behavior, and we need to be able to see when he was engaging in shadow activity. And the criteria, always, the criteria we use to decide what is, when, when is the real God showing up and what is the shadow of the reality, the criteria is the cross. The criteria is the cross. I love what Martin Luther said, I found this a couple weeks ago, when he said, in reading the Bible, we should have the attitude of Paul, where we say, we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. First Corinthians 2.2. 2. Now, Luther didn't apply that consistently at all. I think it's a very good principle to go by. Let's just be consistent with it. God has always been wanting to reveal as much of his real self as he could. And so as we look at this chronicle, knowing who God really is, every aspect of our missionary's activity that is consistent with what he reveals himself to be in the cross, we can say, ah, the real God is popping through. He managed to pop through the sin and the cultural conditioning and, and, and get through. So whatever's consistent with the crucified Christ, we say that's, that's the real God showing up. But whenever we see depictions of the heavenly missionary that are not consistent with the God revealed on the cross, I, I, I ask you to consider seeing that as a negative contrast to the reality that we have in the Christ who's crucified. And we consider it to be a shadow. It's, it's in the same categories as the missionaries appearing to condone female cir- circumcision. Though, insofar as we see depictions that are not consistent with the cross, we're not seeing there, we're seeing there the shadow of the real God, not the real God himself. 
Now that we know that God, who God really is, we can understand how it must have grieved God to accommodate all, as much as the sin that he did in, 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 throughout the Old Testament, even as he does in our own lives now. But we can see in the shadow activity, in God's shadow activity, we who know who God really is, the sin-bearing God, we can see God stooping to bear the sin of his people by allowing them to project their assumptions onto him. He wears them, as it were, takes on that appearance, the appearance of a deity that reflects much more of the sinfulness of the people he's working with than it does his real true nature. Because that's what he does on the cross. The cross here reflects our sinfulness. Whatever's ugly reflects our sinfulness. The beauty is found in the God who condescends to take that ugliness on himself. That reveals what God is like. So that reveals what God is always like. And when we read the Bible, we should know that that's what God is always like, so we, we should be looking for it. Ah, here's another place where God, here's an ugly picture of God. This is a deity that isn't all consistent with the, the, what we find on the cross. So the picture is a negative contrast to that. What reveals God is that he's stepping into it. And bearing the sin of his people. The ugliness reflects the sinfulness of the people that he has to work with. You know, uh, Jesus says in, in John chapter 5 and in Luke 24, he says, all scripture points to me. All scripture points to me. And it's all about me. Well, you got to ask the question, how is it all about you? When you read, see a portrait of God saying, slaughter everything that breathes. How does that point to Jesus? When you hear these vengeful prayers, slaughter the enemies, make their children just starve. How does that point to Jesus? I'm open to any kind of answer, but I submit to you that it points the way that a shadow points to reality. It, it's a negative contrast. I, for years, try to inch it towards the cross. Like, well, maybe it sounds bad as it sounds. Maybe, uh, you know, but no, see, how does it actually bear witness to Christ? Well, Jesus is the one who bears our sin on the cross. Hmm. There's another place where he's bearing sin. He's, he's the kind of God who does that. I don't know that. And so it's a negative contrast to the reality, and that's how it points to the cross. The same love that led God to condescend to bear our sin on the cross was always at work as he condescended to bear the sin of his people, taking on the appearance of something much uglier than he actually is. Okay, let me get specific here. Three fundamental ways that I believe, you don't have to believe it, but I believe the Old Testament is conflicting with the revelation of God on the cross. So these are three fundamental ways that I think we see shadows in the Old Testament. The first one is what we've already been talking about. This is the law. You read the Old Testament, and there's at least a strand of it where you get the impression that God is really an obsessive, uh, law-orientated deity. Uh, a person picks up sticks on the Sabbath, and bam, they got to get slaughtered. Um, okay, so when, Je- when, when Jesus comes on the scene, the people expect him to reinforce the law. If he's the Messiah, you're the one who's going to crack down on the law. You know, you're going to kick some behind here. Actually, what happens is Jesus, who is the real God, he does the exact opposite. And in a number of different ways, he shows the impossibility of anyone keeping the law perfectly. And Paul does the same thing in Galatians 3. He says, the law is given to us as a negative object lesson. You could read shadow there. To lead us to the cross. It's given to show us that we can't do it that way. And so it's like after centuries, God's saying, how's that working for you? It doesn't work very good. It keeps on falling back on you because you can't keep it perfectly. So Paul says, no one's justified by the law. Now you can't do it that way. And so God is, is essentially saying, are, are, do you get the point yet? That's not the way to do it. That's the shadow. Here's the reality. And it gives us a very different way of relating to God based entirely on, on love and trust. 
And so in the light of what Jesus says and what Paul says, I, I, I propose we see the Old Testament law as a shadow, which is exactly what Paul says it is in Colossians 2.17. And the portrait of God as a law-orientated deity is a shadow, just as, as, as Paul says. It's as though God had to first break humanity's addiction to rules, trusting in rules and regulations. He had to first break our addiction to that if he ever was going to inaugurate uh, a kingdom in which is based on a love and trust relationship and not on external threats. But in that shadow activity of this law-orientated deity, we can see how it points to the cross because here God is bearing the sin of his people. This is what they needed. If humanity was ever going to get it, this is what he needed to do. And so as we look at that, we should see our, our sin-bearing God and it points to the cross where God finally fully reveals who he truly is by bearing the sin of the whole world. A second uh, example would be the nationalism of the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, there's a strand of it where you can't help but see it. It's the God plays favorites. This is my special people, right? I'm on their side. I'm against others. Whoever opposes you. So when Jesus shows up, of course, people expect him to reinforce the nationalism. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to be a ruling king who's going to reinforce our nationalism. He's supposed to confirm that we are God's special people. He's supposed to uh, lead us into uh, national sovereignty. Many folks at the time believed that the Messiah was supposed to lead a violent revolution against all who oppressed Israel. Because you find things in the Old Testament that would seem to justify that. But Jesus, but Jesus, who is the real God, does the exact opposite. Everything about him. He models and he teaches a God who's a God who, who gives his life for all people equally. A God who doesn't show favorites. A God whose love is unconditional and universal to everybody. He models and teaches that being a child of God has got nothing to do with your nationality. But everything to do with the state of your heart. He does the opposite of what people expect. So in that light, I submit to you that the Old Testament portrait of God as a nationalistic deity was a shadow. It's a negative contrast to the real thing that was given ahead of time to prepare humanity to eventually be able to receive the real, transnational, global-loving God who's revealed in the crucified Christ. Amen. It's like God had to first break our addiction to our tribalistic, nationalistic mindset, and God had to break our addiction to our nationalistic gods who fight on our side and against our opponents. He had to break that addiction if he ever hoped to have a people who could finally get that his love is not defined by National boundaries. His love is universal. He had to break that addiction if he ever hoped to have a people who had a capacity to view him and to view the world outside of national categories. Who are people who are free from tribalism. Who love people of their other nations as much as themselves. Who understood that God is as much on their side as on our side. Sadly, it's that those national tribalistic categories that are at the foundation of all the world's wars. And sadly, God's people, to a large degree, still seem to be addicted to that way of thinking. But see, God was preparing the world for at least the potential for people to get this. And in God's shadow activity of playing that nationalistic deity, we should see a shadow of the cross. Because we see in this nationalistic activity, now that we know what God's really like, we can see, ah, God, our missionary was bearing the sin of the people. And the ugliness of that portrait of God... There are ugly aspects to it, but that doesn't reflect on God's true nature. No, because I know who God really is. He's revealed in the cross. That reflects on the, on, on the nature of his people that he was dealing with. But what reveals God is the fact that God is willing to stoop to bear their sin and take on that appearance just as he does on the cross when he fully reveals himself by bearing the sin of the world.
And the third way, a third way, I, it's foundational, fundamental, has to do with violence. Oh, this is so important. Holy Spirit, let this land. Uh, open our eyes. Uh, throughout the Bible, you have a God who condones and, and uh, engages in violence. And you saw it there in the imprecatory prayers, presupposing a God who slaughters. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, people expect that he's going to reinforce uh, the use of violence against enemies because that's all part of the Old Testament law. But Jesus, who is the real God, does the exact opposite. Jesus reveals a God who commands us to swear off all violence and to never retaliate. He reveals a God who loves his enemies and chooses to die for them rather than to crush them. And in that light, I propose that the Old Testament portraits of God commanding and engaging in violence should be seen as shadows. They're a negative contrast to the real thing. And they were given ahead of time to prepare humanity to receive the real, enemy-loving, nonviolent God who's revealed in the crucified Christ. It's like God had to first break our addiction to violence and our violent views of him if he hoped to ever eventually re- reveal his real, enemy-loving, nonviolent, true nature on the cross. The history of Israel is an ongoing proof that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You want a covenant that is based on the sword? You wear the covenant and then you use the sword effectively. You don't, you get the sword. Well, look at the history of Israel. It works against you. It's like Jesus shows up and he says, hey, that nationalistic law of violent covenant, how's that working for you? Not very well, actually. They've been oppressed for uh, almost a century now. The whole thing backfired. And see, so God, God was, he took on the appearance of one who condoned violence. This is the missionaries took on the appearance of one who condoned female circumcision. He did it with the hope that he, of, of getting a people who would eventually see the stupidity of thinking that violence ever is a long-term solution, because it's not, ever. It always sooner or later backfires, and there's no lesson of history that's, that's clearer than that. Live by the sword, you die by the sword. All of history is filled with people trusting that God will help them use the sword. So Jesus shows up, and he says, you know what, if you want to be a child of God, you've got to put that thing down. He does the opposite, which means that what we're seeing there is a shadow. The violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, we should be able to see the sin-bearing God stooping to bear the sins of his people as a way of leading them to the cross. When he can finally reveal who he truly is by bearing the sins of the entire world. Now, as we look back on the chronicle of our missionaries' behavior prior to when he disclosed who he truly is, as we look back on that chronicle, we can see the real him popping up all over the place. Because you've got a lot of portraits where, a lot of portraits of God that, where, um, he is, uh, not law-oriented. You find a number of passages in the Old Testament where God's saying, what I really want, is, is, is your heart, what I really want is a love-based, faith-based relationship with you. You find many passages where, where, where God isn't at all like the tribalistic, nationalistic, nationalistic deities of the ancient Near East, where it's revealed that God's the God of the whole world. He loves all people equally. He, he raised up Israel to be servants to the whole world. So you find that strand there, and that's where the, the real God managed to pop through and disclose a little more of himself. And you find many passages in the Old Testament, we can see it, that are consistent with the God revealed in the cross, where he, he hates violence. He abhors violence. And he's the God of peace. But see, to the degree that we find anything in this chronicle of our missionaries' behavior up to the cross, to the degree that anything contrasts with the God revealed on the cross, I'm proposing that we see that, not as reflecting who God really is, but it reflects the shadow of who He really is. It reflects God accommodating the sin of His people. It reflects God stooping to, to the fallen projections of people. Unto him. 
This is what the missionaries did in that tribe when they allowed the tribe to think a certain way about them. Out of love to lead them to the point where they could reveal who they truly are. That's what I think God is doing throughout the Old Testament. Now, now, now lean in on this. Okay, this is, this is crucial. Coming down the runway. Coming down the final, final, final hundred yard dash here. Okay? Marathon's almost over. But this is important. These shadows that we find are still inspired revelations. Because as a shadow of the cross, they point to the cross just as my shadow points to me. So these images of God as a law-oriented, nationalistic, violent-prone deity are a negative contrast to who God really is. But they point to the cross precisely because now that we know who God really is, we can see the humble heavenly missionary stooping to bear the sin of his people and appear uglier than he really is. Just as the cross does when he bears the sin of the world and takes on the appearance of an ugly, God-forsaken, guilty criminal. The ugliness of the cross reflects our sin. What reflects the beauty of God is that he would condescend to bearing that sin, and that's what he's been doing throughout history. These portraits of God that contrast with the cross, they don't reveal God in terms of their content. They reveal God in terms of the contrast. Because by the contrast, it shows how low God's willing to stoop to stay in relationship with these people and lead them forward. But here's the thing, and now really lean in. Holy Spirit, help us to attend to this. Shoot your brain with steroids. Here it is. You can only see a shadow, how a shadow points to a reality, if you accept that the shadow is a shadow. And the shadow contrasts with the reality it's a shadow of. (laughs) I'll say it again. You can only see how a shadow points to a reality, if you accept that the shadow is a shadow that contrasts with the reality it is a shadow of. You don't see that, you'll never see how the shadow points to reality. You can always see how my shadow points to me if you understand that my shadow is my shadow. If you don't give my shadow as much reality as you give me. If if you think my shadow is the real me, well then you'll think it's a different person connected to me at at my feet. A person who lacks all dimensionality in anything that pertains to the senses. A person who is just a negative contrast. Uh, You you have to first start with accepting the shadow is a shadow. So, too, we can only see how the violent Old Testament portraits of God point to the real God if we accept that they are negative contrast to the real God on the cross. We can only see how the law-oriented, nationalistic, violent portraits point to the cross if we accept, listen to this, that these portraits don't reflect the real God alongside of the God revealed on the cross. See, so long as people insist that the Old Testament portraits of God, insofar as they contrast with the cross, That those have as much authority to reveal who God is as the cross does. If you give them as much reality as you give the cross, well, then you can never see how these pictures point to the cross. All these pictures can do is compete with the cross. And that's what leads people to smush them together. Compromising the beauty of the cross. It's like if, 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 if you didn't know, if you ascribe my shadow the same reality as you ascribe me, and you think that that shadow is me, if that shadow of me is as much me as the 3D me, well then you come to the conclusion that Greg Boyd, you know, he's, he's, he's a 3D person, but he's also got this two-dimensional streak in him, weird. And he's, he's, he's got color to him, but he's also got a side that's just no color at all. And he's got personality, but there's a side of him that's just without any personality at all. And he's got order, but there's a part of him that doesn't have any order at all. And, and he's got, you know, a mind, but there's a part of him that's just dumb, stupid, doesn't have any mind, just copies the, what someone else does. You see, you, you fuse it together and you come up with a composite me that would be a whole lot less beautiful than the real me. So also with God. If, if we don't know the shadows are shadows, and if we ascribe to these shadows the same authority as we ascribe to the cross, 
Well, then we just say, ah, oh, well, you know, God's got a loving streak, all that stuff, wonderful, wonderful. But man, you take him off and pick up 600 Sabbath, boom, you can get slaughtered. He's got the streak in him that's like, really? Oh, who knows how to put it together? We smush it all together. And we end up with a composite, compromised picture of God. We can't see how, 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 how. See, if we do that. So long as we're ascribing to these portraits the same authority as we give to Christ, we'll never see how these violent portraits point beyond themselves to a beautiful God. A God is far more beautiful than that. We'll never see how they point to the God of the cross. They, they point to a God who is who isn't nationalistic, who doesn't want a law-based relationship, who doesn't uh, uh, condone violence. We'll never see, as long as we're smooshing these things together, we'll never be able to see how God is altogether beautiful. We can say that, but, but we'll always be having this other part that's kind of ugly. Uh, we'll never be able to say how God is all light and him, there's no darkness. Because you're ascribing reality to portraits that have got a lot of darkness in them. You know, and we'll never be able to say how God is all good, all beautiful. We can't believe if we're smooshing the things together. There's no way we can say that Jesus reveals all of God. We'll never, we'll always have this composite portrait. And the beauty of the cross will be compromised. Paul says to the Colossians, and I'm ending with this. He says, you have the reality. Don't go back to the shadows. Don't go back to the shadows of these regulations, these rules, which notice presuppose a certain picture of God. You've got to do these things to be, appease God. That's presupposing a portrait of God, a law-oriented portrait of God. So when Paul says, don't go back to the shadow rules, he's saying, don't go back to the shadowy God. The law-oriented God of the rules. And the portrait of God is a nationalistic deity and the portrait of God is condoning violence. Those are just aspects of that same portrait. The law is wrapped up with the nationalism, which is what the violence is all about. So if one of them is a shadow, they're all a shadow. The reality is found in Christ. All of the reality is found in Christ. And everything in the Old Testament that negatively contrasts with the crucified Christ I believe, and I'm submitting to you to consider, it's a negative contrast to the cross. It's a shadow of the cross, but it points to the cross because it shows God bearing the sin of people, taking on the semblance of something far uglier than he really is, because that's exactly what he does on the cross. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, folks, it comes back to the, the question that I, 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 I think is the most important question in the world, and we ask it here all the time. But maybe now it's with a little more clarity than ever. What is your picture of God? And who do you give authority to define your picture of God? And we here at Wilton Hills Church say this uh, with a great amount of blessed redundancy. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Nothing but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ crucified. I know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So it comes down to this. Uh, do we believe that all Scripture points to Jesus Christ as He says? And if so, how does it do, do that? I'm proposing it points as a negative contrast, as a shadow points to reality. If you have a different way of seeing it, then, 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 then email email me. But do we believe that all scripture, including the genocidal portraits of God, that they all point to Jesus? Uh, Jesus says that if you see me, you see the Father. Don't go looking anywhere else to the Father. Are we going to believe him or not? Uh, he says, Jesus says in Matthew 11, no one knows the Father except for the Son and whoever the Son reveals him. Do we believe that or not? Or are we going to have pictures that compete with the revelation that Jesus gives us? 
Uh, Jesus says, I am the way. It's singular. The truth. It's singular. Are we going to believe that or not? Or are we going to ascribe truth to these things that compete with the revelation that we find in Christ? Uh, Hebrews 1, 3 says that the Son alone, in contrast to everything that happened before in that chronicle of our missionaries' activity up to the time of the cross, in contrast to all that, the Son is the one and only radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His very essence. Do we believe that or not? Uh, John says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were given through Jesus Christ. The contrast is there. The truth came with Jesus Christ. John 1.18. Do we believe that or not? Uh, the Bible tells us that there's one mediator between God and humanity. It's Jesus. And there's one word between God and humanity. It's Jesus. And there's one Savior, praise God. And there's one revealer. It's Jesus Christ. Do we believe that or not? And see, if we say yes, we believe that. Yes, we believe that. Jesus, the fullness of God, as Paul says over and over, is found in Christ. If we believe that, then I personally don't see any other choice but to believe that everything that is contrary to that is a shadow of that. Which I think is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. And he's saying, don't go back to the shadows. The shadow had a purpose and a function to lead us up to here, but now that we're here and know the reality... That's your sole, singular, absolute authority for telling you who God is. Amen. And see, my experience has been it's that once I see this, this is once I have that aha moment, I have a weight lifted off of me. Uh, I'm trying to like re- being embarrassed by these passages and disgusted by it, and, and I having to believe it's all inspired by God, but seeing it's like ugly and uh, and then trying to somehow. Inch these genocidal portraits and these imprecatory prayers and make it consistent with Jesus, I finally just gave up. It's like, I can't, I can't inch my way there. And the minute I gave up, I can say, this, this is a negative contrast to that. And boom, it's a shadow. It's a shadow. It's a shadow. And now I see what points to Christ. It, God bearing the sin of his people. He didn't start doing that on Calvary. That's where he did it definitively. But that's the kind of God he is. That reveals God. So he's always been doing that. That's what love is. That's what love is. Love is defined as Jesus Christ giving his life for us. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. Uh, I just encourage you to keep an open mind, keep thinking about this. Uh, I encourage you, uh, if this is something that's stimulating something in you, you might want to listen to the message again, download it this week. Because new stuff, you can't assimilate all at once. You've got to chew on it and think on it. And we've got to give space to disagree and, and give space to grow on this. But I'm putting it out there for all those who, for whom it lands. And, um, and otherwise, just be in process on it. And it's okay to be in process on it. In fact, we're all in process on it. I've been, this is, I'm giving you the results of 25 years of being in process. I'm going to close uh, here in prayer. Uh, as I do, I want to remind you about Communitas and consider uh, uh, buying some of those uh, bus uh, uh, tabs and uh, helping people out and volunteering in that community as they're serving the poor at the Dorothy Day Center on July 28th. Mm, right, Father, I, uh, God, I just thank you that you're a God who uh, gives us space to grow and you treat us as persons and... Um, uh, you work through influence. And I, God, I thank you for this community uh, where we, we have permission to, to think out loud and to wrestle with stuff and um, give space to one another on things. God, but I, I pray wherever this lands, wherever we're at, for the parishioners as well, uh, wherever they're at, however they feel about this, I pray, God, however they work it out, that, that you keep on increasing our confidence that you are really, really, really as beautiful as you reveal yourself to be on the cross. And God, I pray that you purge out of our minds every every vestige of any other competing portrait. I pray, God, that we would have minds that are focused on Christ without competition. We're focused on Christ without qualification. We're focused on Christ without compromise, without any kind of smushing. 
And however we work it out theologically, I pray, Lord God, that Holy Spirit, you would you would be increasing our our, our confidence that God is 100 percent cross like. That is the love that defines the, who God is throughout eternity in Jesus name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Love on the world. Thanks. So what did you think? Did you understand Greg's view? It seems that he's basically arguing that the violence of God in the Old Testament is actually, we can think of it as the shadow of God. And just as you would not confuse me with my shadow, we must not confuse the God as revealed in Jesus Christ, the true revelation of God, with the shadow of God in the Old Testament. Yes, you can learn some things about me, my basic shape, my form, some minor features, I suppose, by looking at my shadow, but you can't really understand the real me. And I, I understand that's sort of what Greg is saying about the violence of God in the Old Testament. You can see some, some main features, some, some outline, some shape of, of what God is like, but we don't really get the full revelation of God until the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, Greg is saying that these violent portrayals of God, we can see them as pointing beyond those portrayals to something better, which of course is revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as I indicated in the introduction to today's episode. I'm not sure I fully agree with what Greg is saying. I I have some serious questions about his view. Uh, But the good thing is, he's coming out with a book next year, which hopefully will explain his view in a lot more detail and answer some of those questions that you and I might have. The book is called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And uh, according to him, it should be out in 2016 sometime. Anyway, before then, I would love to hear your thoughts and ideas on what Greg has taught. Or if you if you disagree with him, listen, uh, share with me how you reconcile the violence of God in the Bible with the portrait of God that we have in Jesus Christ, and especially Jesus Christ on the cross. How can God tell people to go kill their enemies while Jesus tells us to love and forgive them? Anyway... Let me know in the comment section for this post. You can find it at theology.fm slash gregboyd slash zero nine. And while you're there, if you want to introduce other people to the ideas in this podcast, you can use the share buttons there to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Also, consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. That helps other people find this podcast. Uh, And hey, like I said, if you want to partner with me, helping this message spread, I would really appreciate it. You can go to redeeminggod.com slash partner and learn more. So until next time, keep thinking and may your life and theology continue to look more and more like Jesus Christ.